So, so we're going to talk about him, actually. Which Ryan? Which Ryan? Your Ryan or the Ryan with the beard? Boy Ryan. Okay. So... One of the things I want to I want to hear from you. I guess I guess last week was a lot of kind of a lot of stuff. We talked talked through the intertestimonial period, which is which is kind of the period of 400 years of silence between Malachi and Matthew, mm-hmm. and and you walked through and learned basically how this religious system that was kind of established by the time Jesus gets there, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, and Herod, and High priests and all those, all those guys, and, and what their roles were, um, and then and then Drew talks through the kingdom. So, would one person l- want to share something that kind of jumped out of them from from what Ryan talked about? I've kind of been commissioned to help you process because I guess it was just so much stuff that it wasn't a whole lot of time to process. But what jumped out? You get the first one. So once yeah. you, but you can't talk after this. What? Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was really interesting to notice the religious transformation in the period of the 400 years between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And, like, I never realized that the Old Testament, they never kept the law. And then in the New Testament, it was like, oh, we're going to do this. Yes. And then they missed Jesus. Yes. Which was a pity. Pendulum swing hard to the other side, yeah. Which which helps you understand a lot more of this the Pharisees. We, we hear Pharisee, we think bad guy. And when you understand where they're coming from and why they established this group of people to hold people to the law, because if we let go of this, we're going to end up right back where we were, chasing idols and being taken over by, you know, right? Exile, basically. And so they, they swung hard to the other side. So you really do kind of get a, a more of an appreciation for these guys and what they're trying to do. But, then, but at the same time, Jesus is tr- true. There's an understatement. Um, you know, they missed him in the process. So what about the kingdom stuff that Drew talked through? What what jumped out of you from that? I think Do you listen to it, Art? You weren't here. Did you listen to it? Wow. It's awesome. I'm just impressed. That's all. Speaking of, speaking of, let me say this. The, the, all of our, these, all of these weeks have been recorded on our podcast so, and you can get it two ways. One, the website under media, or Sunnybrook has a has an app. I don't know if you knew that. Sunnybrook has an app, and there's a media button, and it has all of our sermons and all the table things, and everything's on there. So, anyway. The fact that like Jesus talked about the kingdom of God more than anything else. Yeah. Um, and then we, you know, we hear kingdom, we talk about the kingdom, and I think sometimes when I'm talking about it, it's like, future kingdom but you know Jesus saying the kingdom of God is at hand like mm-hmm. he was bringing the kingdom in and he was the kingdom essentially but yeah. I just I think a lot of times when I talk about it I hear it it's more like a, oh kingdom of God is coming mm-hmm. rather than a it's happening now yep so, it's yeah. lived it's lived out through us mm-hmm. by being in Christ we live out the kingdom and we take it where we go so that's huge Okay, so this week, it's, it's a little bit of a shift in, in what we've been doing so far, um, where we, the last six or seven weeks, six weeks, I guess, we've covered 6,000 years of history from Adam to Jesus, right? So Adam to Abraham is 4,000, Abraham to Jesus is 2,000, and we've just kind of walked through history and, and pointing out different, um, different things, that the key things that you need to understand and, and, and seeing the movement of God's people and God through his people. Um, this time, 
we're not going to literally we only have about 100 years left from the birth of John the Baptist to John in Revelation it's about 100 years so so there's not a whole lot of history we'll and we'll cover some history when we get into the church and go through acts but um this week um we're going to talk through and kind of cover some some more major um theological sweeps throughout scripture um mining uh mining through some major themes and major things that happen to help us see kind of this bigger issue of the atonement uh, is, is what we're going to talk about tonight. So, um, so that's, that's going to be a little different. So we're going to, we're going to jump back into the Old Testament. My, my job is to point into through the, the Old Testament and help us see the, the atonement and how it was established to get to Jesus. And then Ryan's going to kind of take it from there when he shows up. He's going to be a little late. So let me, and then one last thing, um, and this is just based on a couple comments that that Drew Ryan and I've have had with with some people, but um, <clears throat> really our goal in this is is not at all to to help you go. Wow, that's what Bible knowledge looks like. Okay, if you leave here and think, man, those guys know a lot of stuff, then then we feel like we failed <laughs> at at something. Because our goal is not to teach you stuff. Our goal is not to pass on information um, just for information's sake. Um, so. But we also recognize that whenever you, whenever you start to study Scripture, it's, it's like anything else. It, if you haven't spent a whole lot of time doing it, it's going to sound like, man, this is so hard. I don't know how to do this. Man, it's so easy for them or it's so natural for them. I, I assure you it's not. It's just been, there's been for me, I guess, 15 years of being immersed in it and teaching it and being responsible to present it to others and all those things that have trained and Drew and Ryan, same. So, so. I just want to remind and, and, and impress upon you that the goal of this is for you to know and love Jesus. That's, that's the goal. And we believe that by knowing his word and by understanding who God is and, and what he's done, it helps us understand who we are and how to live in response to him. And so we can begin to see, wow, this is how God works. And wow, this is how deeply connected things are like the atonement throughout scripture Wow, that's amazing. God is amazing, and we want, we want us all to lead to a life that worships Him and, and, and loves Him. So just, just want to just reiterate that um, before we start. So let me pray, and then we'll, we'll, we'll start, jump in. God, I thank You for Your Word. I thank You that it brings life to dead places and... Um, I'm thankful for this this time that we get to 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 jump in. I know that I can take for granted um, this word and and what it represents and um, and and just kind of see it as as something that I need to spend time in in order to pass on information. And Lord, I pray that you would convict me when that is how I see things, and that you would show us, Lord, that. Um, that, that you want us to be with you, that you want our hearts. Um, and that because when, when you have us, you have our heart, you have all of us. And so God, help us to surrender to you. Help us to help our eyes to be open to who you are and to um, how amazing you are and how amazing this thing is you've done for us and in us. And, and so God, may all of this lead to a life that just 
surrenders to you and lives, lives for your glory. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. All right, so last week, Drew mentioned and talked a little bit about Peter and Peter's um, rebuking Jesus, okay, which, is, which is, sounds really arrogant for Peter to do. He rebuked Jesus. Um, we would think that's crazy. Until when you begin to hear why he thought the way he thought. So for Peter to say to Jesus, no, Jesus, I'm not going to let you die. You're not going to die. You know, I'm not going to let this happen. Because when Jesus says, I'm going to die, and Peter says, no, you're not. I'm not. I'm, Jesus, you know, I'm rebuking you. Um, he's making a theological statement about who God is and what God's going to do. And, and this was the perspective that Peter had about the way things worked. And, and Peter, and, and Peter, not even close, Drew talked a little bit about, um, about this, about how, you know, this, this kingdom of God comes by way of what? What did he say? Huh? Humility, sacrifice, right? There, that it's, a, it's a sacrificial kingdom. And, and Jesus is a sacrificial king. He's, he's a king who sacrifices. Um, but, but, Peter's, but Peter's comment to Jesus is, is, is really how we think about life in a lot of ways. We, when we think about life, when we think about victory especially, we think about victory happening through us conquering. Um, when you think about victory in any sport, it's the person who wins, who dominates, who's better, who, who, who achieves more, who is more skilled, who whatever. It's the one who conquers is the one who wins. Victory comes through conquering is how the world thinks. And and that's what the Jews were crying out for the, to be released from this oppression of the Romans. And so they needed a king like David to come in, wipe them out. So finally we can be on top again because this is how victory happens is through us conquering them and then we win. And what Jesus comes in and, and does is say, no, 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 no. Victory is going to happen through me dying. And that was what? And, and, and I think this is, I think, part of the, the Pharisees and even the, and the disciples in missing Jesus and missing the point, even though he told them over and over and over, and Ryan's going to point out how Jesus tells them three times, this is what's going to happen, and they still don't get it, is, is because they are, they are consumed with this idea, and, and it's, hard to under, it's hard to fathom. But what, when Jesus says, listen, this is me. And this has always been me. And you, and when you, if you don't see this, if you, then you don't know your scriptures. You would tell this to the teachers of the law, the experts in the in the scriptures. If you can't see me through through the Old Testament, then you've missed the script. You don't know the scriptures. So I want to talk about not just not just how does Jesus' death on a cross do anything for us? How in the world does some some guy dying in this brutal form of execution 2,000 years ago, how does that do anything for me and for you, for us? So, so I, no, I don't just want to go there, but I want to also start to, start to go, is there any clue? Is there any, uh, is there any sign in the Old Testament? Is there anything that would indicate that, that what Jesus did on the cross is a fulfillment of all that he kind of led up to in the Old Testament? So that's what I want to start. And I want to, I want to start, I want to, open it up by basically saying this, that most of the time, <clears throat> God gives, he gives 
the, the information that's needed. To, he gives revelation and gives information that's needed in that time, but he doesn't always give the full thing. We know this because Jesus is the mystery that's been revealed. Um, that's what the Bible, that's what the New Testament says. That Jesus is this mystery who has now been revealed. He's not a mystery anymore because we know who he is and we know now we can look back and go, oh, that's, that's what that meant. But in the moment, in the time, in, in Genesis 3.15, we're going to look at. In, in Genesis 22, we didn't know exactly what was happening. In, in Exodus 15, uh, or 12, whatever, um, we didn't exactly know, but now we can look back and see. So, so here's what I want to say. There is this unfolding story, this unfolding development, that victory comes through suffering, through sacrifice. And, and we see it in in two things that I'm going to talk about. One real briefly, and the other one I'm going to spend more time on. First one is people. We see that victory comes through suffering in the lives of key people in the Old Testament. So here's what I want you, here's what I want you to pick up on. This isn't just a coincidence. These are, this is the way God works. This is what I want you to see, that God works this way. He works different than us. Jesus came, and he had this upside-down kingdom. You know, if you want to be the greatest, be the least. You should be the servant of all. You know, if, if, if someone wants you to walk a mile, walk too. If someone wants to shirt off your back, give them your coat too. If someone hits you on one cheek, turn your, turn your other cheek. This is the upside down way of Jesus. And what, I want to see, what, I, what we want to see is, is there any indication that God set things up from this way from the beginning? That victory comes not through conquering like we think, but through suffering, through sacrifice. So we see this in people. We see this maybe first and foremost through Noah. Think about Noah's life. Uh, he's asked to build a boat. Um, we don't exactly know how long it took. Most people think it takes 120 years. The scripture never says that. It's, it was less than 120 years. It could be 80, it could be 75, anywhere. Some, but it took a long, long time. Okay, But that's not the part. <clears throat> the part is that, that, that maybe you see suffering through victory is um, the people mocking, the people, right? persecuting, if you will, Noah. And you see God rescuing his family as the only family, and you see that. Okay, so just a sign, just a clue. By itself, it would mean nothing. But with all these others, it means something. God is showing us something. Jacob, okay, Jacob, you see several things. Um, Jacob was, we'll, we'll, we'll just say, we'll just talk about him working 14 years Actually, he's supposed to work seven, and he ended up working, having to work 14 to get Leah. Uh, no, sorry. Well, Leah, too. But Rachel, his wife, worked 14 years to get. Think about Joseph. Joseph was thrown into a pit. He was sold into slavery. He was falsely accused. He was thrown into prison and forgotten about for, for two, three years. And he, there was this suffering that took place before this royal ascension. And and is all to, for a purpose, right? But it didn't come, it didn't come, Joseph didn't do anything. Okay, he might have been a, a punk a little bit to his older brothers, but he didn't deserve to be, all those things happened, but God had a plan. There's that, that suffering was a part of his journey and his story to royal ascension. Um, Moses, first 40 years, lush, Second 40 years is when he was kicked, well, basically fled from Egypt and lived in the desert and was a shepherd in difficult times and hiding, right, before the burning bush. David, 10 years, we talk about this, 10 years in the wilderness 
as the anointed king, running for his life from King Saul before he becomes king. Wilderness before rain. <clears throat> you see in David, you see God's power through human weakness for God's glory. You see, you see in Psalms, you see King David as the righteous sufferer, right? In, um, you think about the prophets, think about their life. Isaiah walking around naked for three years just to prove a point. Um, you see all these things happen. These, these, these guys that were called to endure difficult things and di deliver difficult messages um, with very little success, if any. Um, Paul would be an, an example of a guy who Jesus says, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. And uh, one of my favorite tweets from Andrew Wilson is this one about Barnabas. He says, Barnabas gave away his wealth. In return, he wasn't given more wealth, but a life of travel and discomfort with no salary. And then he says, but what a harvest. Right? So, so this is, and you, can, you could go on and on, but, you, but obviously Jesus would be a huge example, um, but we'll get to him. And so you could go on and on about this idea that with God, it seems like it's different than other things. God doesn't use suffering as a punishment always. Um, sometimes suffering is just part of the journey. And it's just part, of, and it seems to be part of the journey for a lot, especially the life of Israel, several key figures, and especially Jesus. So here's what I want you to see. Throughout the Bible, you'll see this development of God's kingdom in exaltation through humility, um, power through weakness, um, life through death, which we'll talk about, and then, of course, victory through suffering, through sacrifice. So here's, here's some promises. So turn to Galatians, no, sorry, Genesis 3.15. Genesis 3.15. I need to. Genesis 3.15, if, 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 and maybe you know this, um, is, is said to believe, is said to be, we believe, the first prophetic scripture about Jesus. First prophecy of Jesus. So this comes literally nine verses after Adam and Eve choose to eat the forbidden fruit and, and sin. Okay, um, The sin that is worse than any other because all of us inherited sin because of this sin. So this is the worst one. The first one is the worst one. Um, they chose to rebel against God. They realize they're naked. They hide. They, God pursues, which is amazing. We talk about this, that God is pursuing them in the midst of their sin. And, and then right after this, Eight, you know, seven verses later in, in verse 15, he's, he makes a promise to do something. And this is what he says, I will put enmity, he's talking to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. And then here's a key sentence. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That word bruise, in, if you read NIV, it says he will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. Um, it's the same word. It's the same Hebrew word. So it's not, the word necessarily isn't different, but the, the I, you know, a head injury is worse than a heel injury um, is, is kind of the point. Is What he's saying is, I'm going to put enmity between you woman, between the woman's offspring, which would be Jesus and, and you, Satan. And, and 
he is going to have victory, but you are, it's going to come through suffering of some sort, through some pain. Again, this verse by itself, we would think, okay, dude, that's nothing. That, you're not connected with anything there. But throughout everything else, you'll see, you'll see a huge, huge connection. Turn to Genesis 15. This is, this is the covenant that God makes with Abraham. Um, someone want, would someone read Genesis 15, 9 through 18? Okay, Anthony, go ahead. So he said to him, Bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. But he brought all these to him and cut them in two, down the middle, and placed each piece opposite the other. But he did not cut the birds in two. And when the vultures came down on the carcasses, Abraham drove them away. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abraham. And behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. Then he said to Abraham, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, and will serve them. Yeah. You're there. And they will afflict them four hundred years, and also the nation whom they serve I will judge. Afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Now for you, you shall go with your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. But in the fourth generation they shall return here. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet completed. And it came to pass when the sun went down, and it was dark, that, behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between the pieces. On the same day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, To your descendants I have given this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, that's, the river Euphrates. That's good. Right there. So, now, already, God has made a promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, huge verse, huge section, where he says, because those who bless you, I will bless, and those who curse you, I will curse. And so even in that promise, there is this promise that it's not all going to be blessing, that there is going to be curse, that some are going to curse you. And so you, you see in, in Abraham's, God's promise to Abraham that his people are going to suffer at some level. In this one, you see, you see royal descendants, okay? Abraham's offspring, Abraham's, the, the kingdom that's going to come through Abraham, carrying out God's kingly rule on earth. This is what he's, this is what he's describing. This is, what he's, um, this is where the, everything's been heading. He, he points to, the, to Exodus. Did you notice that in, in verses 13 and 14? He literally describes exactly what's going to happen in Exodus, Okay. And, and then he describes the victory that's going to happen as they come out. Um, he, he talks about biblical, basically, that th- what we see here is through biblical covenants that God's kingdom comes. Okay? It, it, it's kingdom through covenant. So how does they establish covenant? Well, how does he establish a covenant with Abraham here? What does he do? It's in verses 9 through... 11. Well, actually, it's really in verse. What is it? 17. The Lord walks through the pieces and yeah. slaughtered animals. Yeah, yeah. He kills animals. So, so you've heard this. He takes these animals. This is the way they establish covenants. We, I think we've talked about this a little bit. But when two people have a covenant, they would, they would take an animal 
split in two, and then the two of them would walk through the middle of the, of the split animals, the, the now dead animals, walk through it and say, basically, um, I'm going to hold up my end of the bargain, and if I don't, may it be done to me what's been done to these animals. If I don't, if I don't hold my covenant, if I don't hold my end of the bargain, may I be split in two just like these two. Okay, this is how covenants were established then. Well, so, at, so sacrifice comes, so sacrifice is what happens in, in order for covenant to happen. So covenant comes through sacrifice, and kingdom comes through, through, through covenant. So you see this happening. Um, you see God making the covenant himself. He doesn't let Abraham walk through, because what's, what's Abraham going to do to hold God to his side of the bargain? Nothing. And so God walks through it himself. And essentially, this is, this is what's amazing, is, is God says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold myself to this covenant, and I'm not going to fail on my side, by the way. I'm going to fulfill everything I asked and I've promised. But then what we see later is that his people break their covenant with him over and over and over and over. And what God says is, all right, you've broken your covenant, and I'm not going to make you pay. I'm going to pay. Like, I'm going to pay this price for you to have covenant with me. This is ultimately what he does in Jesus, which is incredible. Um, you, you, so you see here that, that sacrifice establishes covenant. Covenant establishes kingdom. This is all starting in just Genesis 15. So let's keep going. Genesis 22, this is a big one. Does it say he didn't cut the birds into? I do not know. Yeah. That's a good question. I don't know why. I don't know why. I don't know why. I don't actually. That's that's crazy. I hadn't noticed that. Um, I should read my Bible more. Um, Genesis twenty-two. That should be. So this is the story of Abraham and Isaac. Um, somewhat of a popular story. You have. Um, God telling Abraham, hey, God telling Abraham, sacrifice Isaac, your only son. He says this over and over, your one and only son, the son I've promised to you. Go ahead and take him and sacrifice him, your son, your one and only son. And he does, and he, he attempts to, he, he trusts God and he goes because he believes, he, he trusts that God's going to provide. And so um, God provides, so he goes up there and God stops him, and God provides a substitution, okay, keyword, substitution for the son, which is what? You remember? A ram, caught in the thicket. So, so this ram now becomes the sacrificial, the substitutionary atonement for the son that was supposed to die. So you see, you see these themes establishing. You see royal victory, that's what I want you to see. You see royal victory happening through through sacrifice. So what am I what do I mean by royal victory? What would royal victory mean? Okay. And what? What do you mean? Yep. Yep. Yeah. So his covenant, which is this, this, this kingdom that he's establishing through 
his covenant people, is, is, was promised through Isaac. And now, because Isaac is going to live, and now this, this promise of God's kingdom that's going to come through his covenant people is able to continue. So royal, this is what I mean by royal victory. This, this, this promised um, son of the promise of the kingdom of, through, through the covenant that he's made is now is kept alive. And so now we have um, these this big ideas that are being introduced. Also, by the way, if you've read, if you read Andrew Chambers, uh, not Andrew Chambers, he's, he's our guy, Andrew Wilson, uh, his, his chapter on the temple, um, it talks about, which I didn't know this until he pointed it out, but so this, this is Mount Moriah where, where Abraham goes to sacrifice Isaac. It's the same mountain that Solomon builds the temple to which hundreds of thousands of bulls and goats are sacrificed to make atonement for. And it's, it's literally half a mile from that particular place is where we have this Golgotha, place of the skull, which is where Jesus... So, so huge significance um, geographically with, the, with this area. Turn to Exodus 12. Exodus 12. we got to move. This is a big one. God's people are in Egypt and these ten plagues are given to break Pharaoh's, break Pharaoh down, let his people go. You see God redeeming his people through the judgment of, of Egypt. Um, God saves his people through the death of a Passover lamb. So you have, you have victory through death, through suffering. Um, God's wrath was averted through the blood of this lamb by faith in what God said he was going to do. So think, think about that the blood of the lamb, that it, it was by faith that they said, okay, God said, Moses said that God said, if I take this lamb and I kill him, sacrifice him, and I pour his, put his blood all over the doorpost, that my firstborn won't, won't die. So in order to trust him, I'm going to do that. I'm going to have faith that this is true, and I'm going to do that. And God's wrath was averted. And so through this, you see royal victory. You see God's chosen people um, being having victory through atoning sacrifice. So this is it's it's it started wide with Genesis three fifteen. I re- I realize, but it's it's just getting it's getting narrower and narrower. And you see a very huge piece of um, the puzzle in Exodus 12. Now turn to Exodus 19. Exodus 19. Somebody read Exodus 19 verses 3 through 6. Okay. While Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possessions among all peoples, for all, uh, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Okay. So... Now, now God is saying, 
I'm your God, you're my people, and here's who you are to this world. You are, my, you are a kingdom of priests. You are a holy nation. You, you are a kingdom of people that I've called, that I've set apart for me to represent me to the world. So this, this whole idea of royal victory is now becoming more clear. This is literally how God sees his people as, as this, this kingdom of priests. Now, where else have you heard that language? Kingdom of priests, holy nation, or royal priesthood? First Peter. First Peter. Okay. First Peter, for sure, I know of. Um, First Peter, the, 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 the church is a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And you see this, this theme continue to develop. Um, Exodus 20 happens right after this, obviously, because 20 is after 19, usually. And, and God gives a law because he's establishing a covenant with them. And in this covenant is this, this need to deal with something. Okay? In order for God to have a covenant relationship with his people, sin needs to be dealt with. And so you see this happen, and we're going to turn to Leviticus 16 to, to see a, a, a clear picture of, of how their, that their sin must be purified in order to be a holy nation, to, to be this royal priesthood, kingdom of priests. This kingdom of priests, by the way, as you're turning, this is fascinating. Uh, Numbers 11, which I'll probably talk a little bit about next week. This is a great story I, that, that Moses and, and 70 men, uh, 70 of the elders of, Jerusal- of, of uh, Israel were anointed with the Holy Spirit and start prophesying and Anyway, it's a great story, but in this story you see Moses go, "Man, we're all called to, we're all called to be priests. I wish I wish every person here had the Holy Spirit and could prophesy that way." And and um, it's it's fascinating, and I'll talk about it next week in terms of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. But Le- Leviticus sixteen. So, in order for a holy God to dwell with unholy people, there needed to be sacrifices made. To deal with their sin. And so there were sacrifices. There were all kinds of offerings. There were burnt offerings, sin offerings, peace offerings, guilt offerings. And each, each sacrifice or offering had different kinds of animals and different requirements that were needed and all this stuff that was a part of this atoning process, um, the sacrificial system. But the sin of God's people presented two basic issues. One, they were unclean and unholy. That's the same thing, essentially. Um, and the, the second one is that their guilt needed to be removed. So they're, they're, un, they're unclean and they're guilty. Um, and so he established this day of atonement, this, this once a year where, okay, I know that we have sacrifices all throughout the year that you need to make if you do this, if you do that. These are the sacrifices you need to make. These are the kinds of animals and things you need to sacrifice um, or give as an offering. But there's going to be one day a year where we just cover everybody's sin. And we're going to make sacrifice, make a sacrifice to atone for not only the sins of the people, but the sin of the priests and his family. And then we're going to make, we're, we're going to make atonement for the tent of meeting and the holy place where God dwells. Because all of it's sinful because of you sinful people is essentially what God says. And so for this Day of Atonement, four animals are required. A bull for the priest and his family. A goat as a general burnt offering. And then, no, not a goat, a 
a ram as a general burnt offering, and then two goats. Okay, so the two goats represent two different things. The first one is this. The first goat is a sacrifice for the sins of the people, the tent of meeting, the holy place, and we're going to read about it in, in first, or sorry, Leviticus 16, verse 15 and 16. Who would read that? Somebody else. 15 and 16. 15 and 16. Mm-hmm. Leviticus 16, 15 and 16. Then you shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy peace because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of their transgression, all their sins. And so and so he shall do for the tent of the meeting, which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanness. Okay, so God says, I'm, we're, this one goat is going to be to cover the sins of the people and to cover this place. And to cover it all because you guys are sinful, you're unclean, and, and you need to be cleansed of that. You need to be made holy. And so he, God says, this is, what, this is what is required to do that. And so you have this, this, this first goat's death um, that ultimately brings life in their covenant. Life in their covenant relationship with God is required. Death is required for life to happen in their relationship. And, and in this sense, their sins are forgiven, okay? But there's still a problem. They're still guilty. There's, there's still guilt, and the people still know it. And so something else needed to happen, which was the second goat. So read, um, someone else read verses 20 through 22. I can get that. Okay. And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place in the tent of the meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions and all their sins. He shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of the man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. Okay. So this is this has come to be known as what? The scapegoat. The scapegoat. Now, what does he mean by the man who is in readiness? They had a they had a person who was designated as the one who was going to take this goat out into the wilderness and set him free. Okay. So scapegoat. Have you heard this term? Yeah. Outside of the Bible, did you know that it, did you know that it came from here? Yeah. No. Okay. Yeah. This is where this is where this term originates is is this idea of scapegoat it's Leviticus 16 so here's here's what's happening the 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 priest is saying okay they're not only made a sacrifice to 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 cleanse the people of their sin to to make them now holy in God's sight because of the death of this animal life in the kingdom because of the death life in the covenant because of the death of this goat but but the people still know they're guilty and so can you imagine? I don't know how long it would take, but the priest confesses all the sins of all the of the people, places his hands on the goat's head as a way of like saying all those sins are going into this goat, okay, and we're gonna send them away. 
Why would he send them away? Okay. Why would that be important? So they, they, it's, it's, a, it's a physical reminder of God removing their sin, you could say, as far as the east is from the what? The west. You've heard that maybe before. It's, 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 a, it's God's way of saying, listen, I'm going to send your sin away forever. It's gone. The problem was they woke up the next day and they sinned. <laughs> and to, so every year they have to do this over and over and over. Yes? Yes. Oh, the scapegoat curd. Man, that'd be a... Can you imagine? Talk about the black sheep of the family. Uh, black scapegoats of the family. No. Yeah, this, these, this group of wicked scapegoats that are just out in the wilderness establishing their own cult and where sin is about. Anyway, one question. Didn't they end up... What? Didn't they end up throwing the scapegoats off of a cliff after a I have no idea. You probably know more than I do. I don't know. Sure. You are. Why, why would God tell them to send their sin away if he puts Jesus on the cross and then you have also Peter and all his other disciples put a clear reminder of the cross to, to the Gentiles about it? If that's the case, then why does his message from that not lean up to what Jesus is? If he's always telling us to look towards the cross and... Yeah. Look towards that example. Yeah. So what you're what, what you're asking is how does Jesus? So you're kind of asking, how does Jesus fulfill this? Yes. Okay. Great question because that's where we're going. Um, here, here's essentially what happens with this. So their their sin is now removed from them. So it's forgotten. So it was forgiven in the first goat, forgotten in the second goat, um, cleansed in the first goat, and now they're separated from it in the second goat. So this animal became, literally became sin for the people and left camp. Someone look up and read, actually, Brandon, look up and read 2 Corinthians 5.21. Did you say forgiven, forgotten, cleansed? Yeah, first goat, forgiven, second goat, forgotten. First goat, cleansed of their sin. Second goat, separated from their sin. 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 5.21. And then someone else look up Hebrews 13, 11 through 13. No, it's got to be someone else. You've already read. You're one and done. Oh, he's special. Sorry. That's what I say to my kids whenever they go, but it's not fair. I say, he's, well, they're special. I'm sorry. Sharisa, you got it? Hebrews 13, 11 through 13. Yeah. Okay, so read, yeah, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For, for our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Yeah. Okay. Became sin, who knew no sin. She's finding it. She's almost there. I'm already there. <laughs> too, too bad. You're not reading. <laughs> Take your time. Okay, Take your time. Okay, here we go. For the bodies of those animals whose blood was brought into the holy place, holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are buried outside the camp. 
So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to uh, sanctify the people through his own blood. Okay. So that that's Hebrew by the way, Hebrews thirteen is the answer to your question. Um, basically Jesus fulfills both both the cleansing of and the removing from. He he was sacrificed um, for to atone for our sins, to pay for it, to cleanse us of sin, but then significantly, this is what the author of Hebrews is drawing attention to, because he was sacrificed outside the gate, it's essentially it's been he's been removed from. It's 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 significant in that sense. So we also said one thing about in the first book, the sin is forgotten, and in the second book, the sin is cleansed. Cleansed and cleansed and, f- and forgiven in the first goat, forgotten and separated from in the second goat. How is sin forgotten? Because the God I know, I don't think he forgets. Just forgets. Yeah. He just be like, no, I just forgot. You're asking what? how. God forget sin. forget sin? Yes. I don't know. All I know is what he says is, I have removed it as far as the east is from the west. Here's what I see in scripture is that he says, I remember your sins no more. Yeah. Forgotten is passive. Yeah. I wake up, I forgot what I had for dinner. Yeah. I, I can't remember it because I forgot it. That's good. Remembering is active. Yeah. I choose not to hold your sin against you. I don't remember it because I choose not to remember it. Okay. Yeah, that's good. He remembers it no more. That's good. That's way better. Way better than forgotten. Okay. Isaiah 52 and 53 is the last place we need to go to see a major, major promise that helps us understand royal victory through atoning sacrifice. Um, We see it in the Day of Atonement because... This, this sacrifice is made in order for the, the God's people to stay in covenant relationship with Him in order to be a kingdom of priests, right? This royal priesthood, this royal victory through atoning sacrifice. And so we're going to see it again here in Isaiah 52, 53, starting at verse, thir- sorry, yeah, 52 verse 13. Um, I'm going to read these thir- 13 through 15. And, and we're not going to spend a ton of time here. If you don't know, Isaiah 52, 53, major, major prophecy of Jesus. Um, this is from what I understand. Whenever Jewish people come to realize Jesus is the Messiah, it's usually because of Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53. These, these texts are massive in understanding how Jesus fulfilled these things five to six hundred years before they happened, a hundred to two hundred years before crucifixion was even invented, and it's going to talk about it. So, so uh, let me start verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and, and lifted up he, and, and shall be exalted. Okay, that's, that's kingly talk. That's royal reign. As many, as many were astonished as, at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. That's, that's again, kingly um, language. For that which has not been told to them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they will understand. They understand. 
so you see this, this um, kingly royal talk about this, this suffering servant. That's literally what, where this is going. In Isaiah 53, uh, look at verses 4 and 5. I mean, there's tons of verses we could look at. Um, 4 and 5. Surely he has bore, borne our, our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. <coughs> but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with which... Uh, with his wounds, we are healed. So you have um, major atoning sacrifice type language happening. So th this section, and I could go on, there's several others. Verse 7, verse, uh, verse 10, it was the Lord's will to crush him. Um, verse 11 through, through 12, huge sections that, that describe basically literally Jesus fulfills, um, literally fulfills. So Isaiah is clarifying that royal victory comes through this atoning sacrifice. So here's my question. What does, and this is, we're going to take a break and, and Ryan's going to get up. What does royal victory through atoning sacrifice have to do with the gospel? What does royal victory through atoning sacrifice have to do with the gospel? I'm going to leave you with that. And then we will take a two minute, two, three minute break. And then Ryan will get up and, and go. Break. Okay, let's get started here. So Scott left off, and fortunately, by the way, the fact that you don't have worksheets is all my fault. If you're really upset, you can go egg Scott's house, but it is my fault that we don't have worksheets. I will rally that egg, that egg in Scott's house team right here. There you go. Brandon likes to stick it to people. Brandon likes to stick it to people. Okay, um, we have markers. Um, here's what I want to do. I want to ask a question. This has a whole lot to do with what Scott brought up. And, um, and, and keep Isaiah 53 in mind. Keep, keep a lot of this stuff in mind, actually. But if, if I were to challenge you to do anything on your own, anything like, like intentional reading, I would say you cannot go wrong with Isaiah 40 through, I would say, 60, but definitely to, fi to 55. Some of the most important passages there about how God will work and, and raise up his kingdom through atoning sacrifice. All that brings me to this question. Do we have in Jesus, so we've, we've jumped into the new covenant full throttle here. Do we have in Jesus a savior who becomes king? Or, and I think the order very much matters, do we have a king and one of the benefits of being in his kingdom is salvation. Which one of these is the gospel of the New Testament? I would say the whole Bible. The, a, a king who saves. Now, here, now, here's what I want us to evaluate very critically. Listen as I present the gospel. This is this. If someone says, if, if I got 12 seconds on an elevator, and someone says, hey, what's the gospel? I would say the gospel is the fact that Jesus Christ died in our place for our sins so that we could be made right with God. Anyone argue with that? No. Yet, I've completely ignored one thing. A gigantic thing regarding the New Testament gospel. 
And, and there's so much in, in Mark's gospel that I wish we had time to go through. I wish we could just sit down and read the whole thing around an armchair with hot chocolate, but we can't. Nevertheless, here's Mark's gospel in a nutshell. First, eight and a half chapters. Jesus is showing what the kingdom is going to be like. He's healing people. He's declaring the need for repentance. He is working miracles. He is giving people a taste of the kingdom of heaven. And then in the middle of chapter 8, he gives three predictions of his death. And, in, and he, he redefines um, the kingdom in the minds of his disciples. And what he does is he says, the kingdom will come to fruition. The kingdom will bubble up to the top through death. What? Jesus, you are, uh, sorry for being blasphemous, Jesus, but that sounds stupid because you're the Messiah, you're the reigning king, you're supposed to come in and overthrow the Roman government, you're supposed to make sure that we never go into exile again, you're supposed to be our king. And he says, yeah, I'm going to be, I got to die first. And they're just confused. So Mark 8, uh, let me see the passages. Mark, we're not going to read this because we don't have time, but I, I wouldn't mind if you did. Mark 8, 27 to the end of the chapter, Jesus' first prediction of his passion and resurrection And we find out a couple of things about the kingdom, that the kingdom will, one, involve suffering, suffering, atoning sacrifice. Two, that the the kingdom will will involve the Messiah coming in power and in glory. Okay, so chapter 9, Mark chapter 9, his second passion resurrection prediction. That would be 9, 30 through 37. One of the things that he says is... um, the kingdom is going to involve, it's going to be defined by service. It's going to be defined by those who serve others. I'm not going to be your, your militant king. I'm going to be a serving king. That's the second one. And then the third one I want to read. Mark 10, verses, starting in verse 32. Listen to this. is the, Jesus' clearest prediction. The other ones have veiled, somewhat veiled imagery, though we, after the cross, can clearly see what he's saying. But here he gets quite clear with his followers. Verse 32 of Mark 10. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going to be delivered, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man, that's a Daniel 7 reference, the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and to the scribes. Chief priests, if you remember last, last week's stuff on the intertestamental stuff, chief priests, Sadducees, scribes, Pharisees. We're talking both political parties here, both the very conservative and the very liberal. And they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. That would be Rome. That would be the Herodians. Now we're getting all the players from last week back involved. And they're all going to have a critical role to play in the killing of our king. And they will mock him and spit on him. Isaiah 53, suffering servant. Hear all this Old Testament imagery tumble over one another. They will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Now, that's just a crazy thing to say when you're talking about asserting your own prerogative of establishing your kingdom. Because in this part of the world, in this part of world history, that's not how things are done. You establish kingdoms by running off those in opposition to you. Keep that in mind. Go ahead. Let's hear your objection. I wasn't going to say anything. I was going to say, if he beats death, what gets better than that? See, you're a theologian. We'll get there. You're there. But that's what it is. But imagine if you haven't seen this yet. Imagine if you're 
I would say you've been blind to how God works. But imagine if you expected this Messiah to free you from the tyranny of Rome. And he shows up and says, Rome's not your problem. It's death. It's sin. You're having a hard time getting your mind around. Now, Rome will fall. But you're right. It's, it's going to be the defeat of another principality and power, as Paul will call it in his epistles. Carrying on, verse 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask you. Seems like a reasonable demand. Verse 36. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. And Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Now tell me, what does cup re- re- represent in the prophets? All the wrath. 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 We are going to see God's wrath. Jesus says, he doesn't say it's inappropriate to want to rank highly in the kingdom. Like, that's, that's not his critique. His critique is, that's probably a good idea. A, I can't grant you that. That's the Father's, that's the father's prerogative to grant you a spot at his right hand. But you can get there. You're just going to have to drink some wrath. That's what Jesus says, right? Yeah. yeah, but why does he say that if through, if it says through the son, you meet the father? If yeah. I'm not, not tripping out, but if it says that, then why can't he just promote them? Why can't he just say you'll be at my right, you'll be at my left? Because if he's truly the king and all this, he has the final. He's the serving king, and there's this beautiful balance in the Trinity as they serve and exalt one another. And he's simply saying. That is not my thing. I think that Jesus is eternally subordinate to the Father. Not in, his, not in his essence, not in his being. He is fully God and fully supreme over the entire universe, yet he chooses to submit to the Father's will. Holy Spirit does the same thing with Jesus and the Father. There's this incredible picture of absolute sovereignty and willful submission to one another. And when we teach Ephesians one day, I'll talk to you about how that works. Yeah. Would definitely help because I know, I know. We'll get past it. Okay. Then he says, and they say, yeah, we can drink that. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. So he says, to be a part of my kingdom, you will suffer. This isn't just something for the king himself. This is how you enter the kingdom. You will suffer. In the baptism with which you are baptized, or I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but for those, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called to them and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority. That's a kingly word, authority. But it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. He doesn't chastise greatness. He doesn't chastise position in the kingdom. He just says that, the way you attain it is differently than you think. You have to serve. You have to die. You have to drink the wrath of God. Okay. Whoever would be first among you must be a slave of all. For even the Son of Man, that great figure in Daniel 7, coming from this, the one that speaks for the Ancient of Days, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now here's what I want to tell you. We just got through a bunch of thick stuff, and it wasn't until the end that Jesus even mentions this. 
It's kingdom, 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 salvation. And we just present the gospel as salvation. Just The gospel is nothing more than that God has provided a way for Brandon to get into heaven. And that is such a short-sighted view of the gospel. It's Because if you read how Jesus and his early followers present the gospel, it is kingdom, 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 kingdom. And one of the great benefits of that kingdom is salvation. But why not present just... Why would the human mind not just present salvation? Because... The way you're describing it, you're describing it as the final picture of everything. No, Jesus doesn't let kingdom wait. Kingdom's here. Mark 1, 14 and 15. Repent and believe for the kingdom of God is here. Okay, but you just said king, 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 salvation. I'm so. saying salva- it's, it's getting the cart before the horse to say, to present the gospel as salvation alone. The gospel is the kingdom, yeah. and one of the benefits of the kingdom is salvation. Okay. Make sense? Yes. Or I could just say the Yankees are Derek Jeter. And you'd be like, well, what about this guy and this guy and this guy and this guy? I'd be like, no, it's just Derek Jeter. Yeah. No, like the, he's just part of it. Now, he's a really like, impressive part of it, but it's not the whole thing. Am I talking your language now? Yes. <laughs> By the way, I hate that man. Yes? But when you do go to Mark, when you say it's near? It's near. It's near, okay. So... That's what I was like. I heard here, so I was like wondering. Like, I might have said here. Well, I like. I was like, has the gospel actually happened yet? I mean, I'm like, has the gospel actually happened yet? If Jesus is still on earth alive. But. Yeah, I mean, it's like it's to what extent do you want to um, to to parse that out? At, at what point is the kingdom here? Is it when Jesus is working miracles? Yeah. Is it when Jesus is up on the cross? Yeah. They're all kind of, you can't just say, now the kingdom's here. It's like, man, the kingdom was here whenever the creator of the universe found a way to shove his, ent- his entire essence into an eight and a half pound baby. Like the kingdom was here <laughs> at the incarnation. Like I, I, I feel that that's the most incredible miracle that's ever been worked. How God fit all of himself in a baby. The resurrection, not as impressive. How he can contain himself like that. And yet, so the, 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 the kingdom is here, and the kingdom is here some more, and the kingdom is here in a different way, and the kingdom is here and here and here. And all I, I just want, all I want to say is that it's under this umbrella that you have salvation. And you have the restoration of the world. And you have the reconciliation of all things. And to be honest, another thing that's under the kingdom, judgment. Yeah. <laughs> We got a prophecy lover. We got, um, like, there, there are many aspects of the kingdom. All I'm trying to say is that when we present the Gospels, and our last week of this, I hope you don't miss it, our last week of this will be to do our best um, to articulate the fullness of the Gospel. All I'm saying is that we are talking, we present the Gospel in such a way when we only talk about salvation, like talking as with, about biceps, as if that's the only way to measure health. It's part of it. But it, it ignores so much. It's a much bigger package. And I think that we have probably lost a lot of credibility with the world because of our skewed view of the gospel. When you exalt salvation over kingship, you, you, you can't have salvation without submission to the king. Yeah. The, the gospel, it, it, it glorifies God himself. To speak about salvation only and nothing else is to glorify mankind and our eternity. Well, in some way, you can even see how the kingdom, like, started to reveal itself when, like, what happened, what Scott was talking about, like, when God 
made that covenant with himself. Mm -hmm. Because at that point, he was saying, I'm going to have perfect balance of both wrath and forgiveness. And there's going to be this complete picture. And therefore, no sin is going to separate you from me. Yeah. And so it's like kingdom was here from the very beginning. But it like, you know, the fog like got wiped away when Mm -hmm. Christ came. Yep. And, and, and I like how you put that. The kingdom has just never not existed. It's always existed. At the fall, we defected to the other side. That's the problem, is that there were opposing kingdoms. For Adam's sin was not the first sin in history. Satan's was. Um, and, and when we became complicit in that, we, we defected to the other side. And the gospel is the assertion that there is this superior kingdom to the one that we currently serve, Satan's. And that one of the most intelligent and <laughs> profound things you can do is to walk away from Satan's army and join forces with a new Lord. You have a Lord and the Lord. And, and that's, that's what, when you do that, now you have access to salvation because you have access to who? To Jesus, that great high priest. I've gone so far off my notes, I don't even know where I am. <clears throat> okay, we don't have time to continue reading in Mark. Let me just breeze through a couple of ideas. Here's how I was, so we've done the first half of Mark. Jesus gives a taste of the kingdom, demonstrates what it looks like. Mark 8, 9, and 10, he redefines the kingdom. He redefines it in terms of suffering, this, this kingdom that comes about by a suffering and an atoning sacrifice. The back half of the book, picking it up in chapter 11. Chapters 11, 12, and 13, you have Jesus approaching the cross. Particularly, you see in this part of Mark's gospel, the, in the uh, triumphal entry, where he walks into Jerusalem. They're singing, Hosanna, Hosanna. They are quoting <coughs> Psalm 118. Psalm 118. Yeah, they're quoting Psalm 118, which is this messianic psalm about a Davidic king who walks in and takes his, 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 his rulership or his reign into the temple. That's what Jesus does. Walks into the city, Hosanna, Hosanna. Walks into the temple, starts flipping tables. Like that's, that's the king. Doing what he does, asserting his will over his property. Saying this, well, this kingdom is going to, going to run under my control. So that's, that's Mark um, 11, 12, and 13, sorry. Along that, you have him cursing a fig tree, which is just indicative of his ability to curse the temple. And he talks about that he will tear it down. Mark 14 and 15, you have Jesus. This, there's an emphasis on Jesus fulfilling the scriptures. Mark's passion account. Um, you really could use the Old Testament as simply a script for Mark's passion account. Jesus follows what is, what is prophesied about him to the letter. And Mark goes to great pains to demonstrate that point. Um, Some of the phrases you'll see, um, Mark 14, the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, Jesus says, in order, in Mark, in back half of 14, in order that the Scriptures be fulfilled. Jesus is using this as a script. Um, In his trial before the Sanhedrin, you have the silent king being humiliated, abused before the religious leaders. And all that Mark is asking his readers to see is as the king of the universe being humiliated and standing silent. Ah, Isaiah 53. Suffering servant. And Mark's early audience would have known this stuff and they would have picked up what he's... Mark says over and over, very implicitly, but over and over, 
Jesus is the suffering servant. Jesus is the, um, the, the righteous sufferer of the Psalms. Jesus is the shepherd of Zechariah. They, they would be picking these things up. And then finally in his crucifixion, Jesus, um, he, he has the encounter with Pilate and then they crucify him. Now here's one thing I want you guys to understand about Roman crucifixion. Roman crucifixions are, are A, it's an, an, act of, of, uh, an act of terrorism. I, I, I don't necessarily want to crucify people too high. I want them very low to the ground so that you, you guys will all walk by and see the agony they're in and just know that if you dare cross me, the Roman government, you will experience the same fate. Also, I like that they are crucified outside the city where the birds will not be like shooed away so that those walking towards Jerusalem will see the vultures swirling overhead. They'll know what that means. And they will realize this is a Roman city under Roman control. And one of the stupidest things you can do is to cross us because we are, we are Rome and we have a little thing called the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. We make sure that everything that we own is very, very peaceful. And we do that by absolutely murdering anyone who would dare cross us. So we have a, an entire empire that's terrified of us. That's what crucifixion is intended to do. Here's another thing it was intended to do. It mocks those being crucified. Because you would be crucified, A, if you're poor or um, a common criminal or whatever. This is not anything we would do to someone who has the dignity of a Roman citizenship. But I will crucify you because you have dared to cross me. Therefore, you have tried to elevate yourself above your position. You've put yourself in a kingly position. And I'm going to make fun of you by lifting you up and exalting you so that everyone can look at you on your throne and laugh. Then define Jesus then. Because in the Bible, don't they say that this man has done nothing wrong? Uh-huh. What was was who's the emperor out that in the Bible? Pilate. Pontius Pilate. Does he not say that this man has done nothing wrong? Yep. So if he says he's done nothing wrong, and the crucifixion is meant to set an example to those who go against Rome. Yeah. Why? Well, I mean, in Jesus's case, even though it's his plan to be on the cross, why do it? Because well, here's what you got to do: you got to go read that gospel. <laughs> this is what it happens. They. Pilate is under pressure to do this. Okay? Through the crowd and More than convict, like, scarier to Pilate than killing an innocent man is to dare lose control of the city of Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. So the city of Jerusalem during the Passover would have been doubled in size. They're normally about 50 to 100,000 people. You put 200,000 people in there and you all of a sudden go against what the population wants and you start a riot. Caesar doesn't need Pilate. Caesar kills Pilate and brings someone in that can handle it. Pilate can't lose control of the city. Easiest way to maintain peace and control is to do what that big mob is telling me to do, and they're saying crucify him. Hmm. Now here's the irony. As Jesus is going up on an instrument of death that is intended to mock those who would dare exalt themselves over the nation of Rome, he really is being exalted over the nation of Rome. Because the Bible speaks very clearly that the kingdom is instituted. It, is, it culminates on the sacrificial atoning death of the king. Now here, and and that's, that we'll, we'll end with Mark there, but let's look at what Paul says in a couple of places about these things. No, no. One of the issues that 
So we've we've acknowledged that this is not true. Savior. That becomes king. It's he always was king. And he become and he comes to save. So a couple of the is- hmm? I was teaching. Stop it. Um <laughs> One of the things that systematic theologians wrestle with is this idea of, did Jesus, was his atoning sacrifice, was it a penal substitutionary sacrifice? Or something called Christus Victor. Now let me explain these two terms and then we'll decide which one's right. Christus Victor is the thought that Jesus, in his death, became the victorious Christ. He defeated the opposition. He defeated death. He defeated Satan. That's the Christus Victor view of Jesus' death. The penal substitution view says that there was a legal debt that had to be paid. A legal debt that had to be paid. Therefore, there's a penalty involved. And that someone else paid it in our place. Systematic theologians will wrestle over these things ad nauseum, saying it must be one or the other. And if you tell me that, then I say, oh, well, I'll, I'll pick this one. But notice what I've done when I pick that one. The truth is, this should go on top. Because Christus Victor, the king defeating the enemy, defeating the king of the, op- of the opposing kingdoms. And when he does that, we'll see in Paul's letter to both the Colossians and the Ephesians, when he does that, this is achieved. He defeats the powers of the opposition. He defeats, defeats the powers of darkness. And in so doing, wins our substitutionary atonement. He pays our penalty. Now, let me make one thing clear. Who, if we are in a legal debt, to whom? Who does Jesus pay the sacrifice to save us from? The Father. The The typical answer that you'll find when I'm not in a room full of academics and theologians, often you'll find people say, He paid the penalty to save us from Satan. The truth is we were, we were never under the, the wrath of Satan. We've been manipulated by Satan. We have willingly bought into his lies. Um, but Jesus paid the penalty that God had over us. You see, we are all objects of God's wrath. And Jesus, when he goes in as the substitutionary sacrifice... What he does is he absorbs that wrath. Jesus took all of the wrath on himself. Some people that like to not understand this well will call this divine child abuse. But that just says that Jesus is not in control. But again, kings are in control. Willingly lays down his life. Now let's read a couple of passages that talk about this. Ephesians 2. I want to go there first. We've got to wrap this up here in a second. Ephesians 2. Here Paul describes our situation. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, 
following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. In essence, Paul says, you, were a, you had sworn allegiance to another king. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being, I didn't intend to read this, but it's too beautiful, I can't stop. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, even when we were fighting for ISIS, to use a really, I think, skewed illustration, even when we were fighting for the enemy, he loved us so much that he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now, if that's not kingdom language, I don't know what is. Raised us up and seated us with him in the heavenly places so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Not just penal substitution but a redemption by winning you over from the wrong kingdom. A king who saves. Another great, great passage, Colossians 1, a couple books over. Colossians 2, my apologies. <laughs> Listen to this, Colossians and Ephesians run alongside one another. And you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh... You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And look at what he says. By, here, here it is. By forgiving our trespasses and then canceling the record of debt and dealing with our legal demands we were under, he took away all the power of the enemy. He defeated the other kingdom. So he ends that paragraph, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. That would be Jesus. So not just saves Brandon from his sins, he does so by defeating the things that the enemy can hold over him. He just crushes the opposing kingdom. And in that way, Christ can win Brandon. What did you just read? Hmm? What did you just read? Oh, sorry. Colossians 2, starting in verse 13. My fault. <clears throat> I really wish I had time to talk about imputation, but I don't. I don't. Let me, uh, we can talk about it afterwards. <laughs> Let me go to one last passage that I think demonstrates probably better than the rest of these. Um, the essential connection between kingdom and salvation, between a king and the, uh, what's your phrase you kept using? The royal victory and atoning sacrifice. You can't separate them, but I will say that there's probably an order to them. I will go royal victory brings uh, it comes by sacrifice, and therefore we become members of the kingdom who have the benefit of salvation. But here is some of two of the most beautiful chapters to sit side by side. Revelation 4 and 5. This is God's throne room. 
This is God's throne room. In Revelation 4, God the Father is praised as being the king of all creation. And in Revelation 5, God the Son, you'll see the Lamb, is praised as being the king over all redemption. Now here, I just want to read a little bit out of Revelation 5. So, John the Apostle is here. He sees that there is a scroll that has in it all of the secrets of everything that you might want to know about what God is doing. This is what he says. Then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one on heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I, John, began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, that's king language, the root of David, that's king language, has conquered king language so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. So thus far, he has described a very kingly figure sitting on the throne. Now let's see how else he describes it. And between the throne and the four living creatures, And among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. That's an act of service, worship, paying tribute to one's king each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. You cannot separate a ransoming sacrifice from the kingdom of God. And my greatest concern is that when we talk about our Jesus, we so much fixate on this sacrifice that makes sure that I'm good. And we ignore so much of what the Bible says about Jesus as being a king who saves, not a savior who happened to become king. I think the order matters, and I really hope that you'll mess with, like, you'll run through these things, read the Gospels, read Romans, read Paul's epistles, read Revelation, and see how the Gospel is presented, and it is always as atoning sacrifice that sits underneath the umbrella of this victory, this kingly, triumphal victory. And I hope that by the time we're done here in a couple of weeks, you'll be able to give a fuller, more biblical Gospel when people want to know about this Jesus we follow. Any thoughts or questions? I have run over five minutes, but that is cool because Scott ran over ten. (laughs) (laughs) Any last thoughts? Do not tell Drew because that's something we really like to make fun of him about and we can't do it as hypocrites. (laughs) Okay, let me pray and we'll be done. Brandon, you were praying with us in there too, right? Okay.
Let's pray. God, we are grateful for your scriptures. We are grateful for your gospel, and we are grateful for you as our king that made a way for us to be members of your kingdom. Teach us to always read carefully and teach us always to hold your words in high regard and teach us to follow them well. Teach us to love each other and you more. We love you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.